0: The reading is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 1, and reading from verses 3 to 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you very much, John. Good morning, everybody. Please do keep your Bibles open at that passage in 1 Peter 1. Uh, I've been asked to speak on this passage, and the uh, theme should appear on our screen. It is No Hope Like Christ's Hope. Much to my wife Margaret's dismay, I spend quite a lot of time in Blackwell's bookshop, and I've seen some of you there as well. And uh, if you went in at the beginning of this year, Blackwell's put out a very substantial display of books, particularly for worried customers who just endured what I think most of us felt was a terrible year, 2016. And this was the advertising pitch. For many, in 2017, hope is the only thing left in their armory. Here is a selection of books that have inspired hope. Reviewers and social commentators tell us that people trying to predict the future at the present time, there are some surprisingly optimistic contributions in Blackwells, but the vast majority of writers now line up with something which uh, was spoken by Arthur C. Clarke some while ago. You may remember him, he was associated with the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. And this is what he said as people think about the future. No age has shown more interest in the future than ours, which is ironic since it may not have one. And many people share his pessimism. There's now a deep-set uncertainty about what the future holds. Uh, We are no longer optimistic about the future of the planet. We are not optimistic about international stability. We're not even optimistic about our own nation or even our own lives. Events such as we've witnessed in the last few days in Manchester just underline the sense of insecurity and uncertainty which we face. Most significantly, of course, people are terrified of one certainty to do with the future, and that is our death. The theme of immortality has been on people's minds for centuries, but these days it is a very serious research industry. I've got a book at home which is uh, uh, entitled How to Live Forever or Die Trying. People long to escape this fearful future. In fact, one sociologist says that the medicalization of daily life, that is, our emphasis on diets, vitamin supplements, ex- exercise, vitamin supplements, and so on, is now the primary strategy for suppressing the fear of death. For many people, it is a terrifying prospect. Uh, You can now go to certain websites, apparently, which will predict the date of your death. You just type in your age, your family background, your health, and it will deliver a predicted date. Of course, those websites aren't very popular. Most people do not want to know. They don't want to be reminded of that terrifying prospect. But this theme of hope and the future and indeed the prospect of death is very important because it's been well said that any philosophy which cannot make sense of death cannot make sense of life either. And the reason is obvious when you think about it because our expectations of the future, good or bad, substantially feed back to influence life now. It's not simply that hope is about our emotional well-being. It also substantially impacts our decision-making and our motives. In that sense, hope is not simply about the future. Hope is life itself. Many of the Bible books which speak about the future are written to God's people who are under serious pressure. They were under persecution, both in the Old and the New Testament. And Peter, of course, his first letter is no exception. Peter is sometimes called the Apostle of Hope because he realized that hope was right at the heart of the Christian faith. One of his central aims was to encourage his readers facing a whole host of trials and pressures by giving them solid hope for the future and indeed confidence or even joy living as they were in all the turmoil and uncertainty of their world. So we see in these verses that hope is not a sedative, it is an injection of adrenaline It is a spur for action as to how we should live this present moment. Peter shows that hope spans past, present, and future. First of all, hope is based on a past event. If you have a Bible in front of you or you see it on screen, verse 3, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope for the future is based on an event which has already happened. Usually, our hopes are to do with something that's not yet occurred, and we estimate what it might be like. We hope that it will be a good Sunday lunch. We hope the sun will continue to shine this afternoon. We hope if we do enough work, we will pass our examinations. We hope the preacher will soon sit down. But there are no guarantees. The difference, you'll notice, in the way in which Peter describes it, the radical difference of Christ's hope is that it will be realized, it is totally certain, because it's founded on something which has already happened. Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter knew this, of course, not just as a theological truth, but as something which had completely transformed his own life. When Jesus died... Peter's hopes died with him. And then when he met the risen Lord, his life was completely transformed. He realized that in Jesus' victory, in his death and resurrection, God is in the process of making all things new, including everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, everyone who is united to the risen Lord. And so he makes that connection in verse 3, which we've looked at. Christ's resurrection spells hope not simply because he lives, but because he's introduced us into that new life. So you'll see verse 3. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our new life, A life which extends into eternity is now totally guaranteed because of Jesus' resurrection. Nothing in our lives is more certain than that reality. So the ultimate future for Christians is guaranteed because of that moment of resurrection and the introduction of the new age which is now dawning through what Christ has done. Um, If you just go down to verse 21 in uh, chapter 1, I think it's also on screen. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Hope is based on a past event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second, hope celebrates a secure future. Uh, We've read verse 3, he's given us new birth into a living hope. And verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Uh, Margaret and I are now at the stage of life where our three daughters have already allocated our modest possessions between them. Uh, One of them has suggested that all the books should go to Anna, our house should go to Catherine and Becky will get the elderly parents to look after. Now, the New Testament uses this idea of inheritance to express the legal claim which the heir already has on the property, even though the father is still alive. You may remember Jesus' story of the prodigal son, give me what belongs to me. The resurrection of Jesus here points to this fact. Peter is encouraging Christians in the uncertain world in which they live, to remember that in the light of what Jesus has done, their future is absolutely secure. Our name is already on the full inheritance. It is waiting for us, verse 5 says, ready to be revealed on that day. The resurrection of Jesus, our new birth in him, means that God's salvation is on the way now to completion. It is there, kept in heaven by God himself. Um, Christian hope is profoundly different from the utopian hopes and dreams of some ideologies. God's purpose for our future is already a reality. It is secure. Um, Some of you travelers might remember the days when you always had to Uh, confirm your reservation with an airline before you traveled you had to make sure you confirmed your reservation Uh, i once failed to do that and as a result i couldn't board a flight i spent 24 hours in a very uncomfortable russian airport i'd failed to confirm my reservation when we gather in heaven we know our reservation is confirmed Our home is secure. There'll be no confusion. Our name is already on the inheritance, kept in heaven for you. It is a secure possession. Some people think uh, when Peter was writing, he was making an Old Testament illusion. In other words, there is a promised land already prepared for us. It is kept safely by God, Peter is saying. It can't perish, spoil, or fade. If you look at verse 9, it's described as the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls, that final completion of all that God has begun in our lives. That is the day for which we are heading. That is the day when everything will be summed up to find its unity, its completion, its shalom in Jesus Christ. In a week like this, it's, of course, entirely understandable and right that we feel the brokenness of our world. We understand something of its pains and sorrows. And so Peter, in his second letter, reminds Christians like us, living in an evil world, to look, to anticipate that day, he says, according to God's promises, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, It will not spoil. It cannot be defiled. There will be no shred of bitterness or hate or arrogance or greed. There will be no more pain or death or tears. There will be nothing to spoil that guaranteed home. This is really important, I think, to underline these days, even if it's familiar to us Christians. It is said that very often as Christians grow older, particularly those of us who are close to our own death, can sometimes move into a period of uncertainty or a lack of assurance. Will I really be with Christ in heaven? Will I really be secure? And here God is promising to us, it is absolutely sure and certain because of the resurrection of Jesus and because that home is secure and safe. Our hope is based on a past event. Our hope celebrates a secure future. And thirdly, hope transforms our present experience. The passage indicates various ways in in which that happens, and let me just put up three bullet points. First, powerful protection, verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. If you read the rest of Peter's letter, you know that he is a realist. Peter is not attempting to escape some sordid present simply by promising a glorious future. He knows all about the present struggles of God's people and he writes a good deal about it in this letter. So he reminds us that Christian hope, founded on the resurrection of Jesus and looking forward to that secure future, helps us to confront This present reality. We are kept by God's power, he says in verse 5. After all, it would be very little comfort to know our future inheritance is secure if, in the end, we never made it to that future inheritance. Uh, Ed Clowney puts it like this. Not only is our inheritance kept for us, we are kept for our inheritance, And the word Peter uses, as you probably know, has a kind of military ring about it. We are shielded. We are kept under guard. So that no matter what is thrown at the Christian community, what enemies are ranged against us, no matter how battered we might feel in our Christian experience, or indeed the griefs of living in a broken world, God will garrison us, protect us, guard us. Now, the tense of the verb actually implies he is, we are constantly going to experience God's protecting power if we continue to trust in him. In fact, in verse 6, he describes trials of all kinds. He uses a word which implies uh, a whole variety of pressures, grief from all kinds of trials, many colored trials. He uses the word just one other time in First Peter and that is in chapter 4 and verse 10 where he describes God's grace in its various forms. And so it nicely balances the idea that all kinds of trouble will be matched by all kinds of grace. Of course, it doesn't mean that suffering disappears. It doesn't mean that we automatically beam up from the present mess into some secure mothership. We are not immune from the sorrows and challenges of this fallen world. But God's purpose is not to bypass those challenges, but to transform them. We are shielded by God's power. A second thing in the present is such pressures produce a patient endurance. We're familiar with these words, verse 7. These trials have come to you so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This present moment Coupled with that hope for the future results in patient endurance, in a maturing faith like gold that's refined by fire. Verse 7 is just worth noticing how it continues. It says, This will result in praise, glory, and honor when that day comes. For sure, it is praise and honor and glory for God when finally we are at home with all of God's people. But there are quite a few writers who say that verse actually might refer to us. It will result in praise and glory and honor for God's faithful people who have endured through these trials in the light of that living hope. It's another aspect of the transforming power of hope that it produces, this patient endurance. As we face these trials, we know they will never overcome us. We know that they will never be separated from God's love. We know that that inheritance can never be damaged. We know that the certainties of our present life cannot be erased. That future perspective transforms our present experience. And finally, we should notice that it also includes another way in which hope transforms this moment. Peter speaks about joyful anticipation. Verse 5 we read, you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And so, verse 6 continues, in this you greatly rejoice. Peter is describing the steady joyfulness of those who know the future. Those who, despite suffering grief of all kinds, know that evil has lost the initiative. We know that evil no longer rules over us we are shielded and one day it will be done away with when our final salvation is fully revealed. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 13 reminds us rejoice Peter says that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. He says the same in this passage you'll see it there in verse 8. Believing in Christ, he says, you are filled with inexpressible joy. One day, we will see Jesus. At the moment, unlike Peter, we've never seen Jesus, but we can still be filled with this inexpressible joy through living our relationship with him here and now and anticipating that future day. Anticipating that heavenly joy, I think, is quite important. It transforms our lives, even in the midst of evil. We know that this world, our lives, are not destined for the dust bowls of infinity. God's purpose, already underway through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So there really should be a sense of joyful anticipation as we reflect on that future. In fact, I like the way in which Jim Packer gave the illustration of how we should look at the issue of our death and of the future. He said it should be rather like children looking forward to their holidays. Uh, When I was brought up as a child, I was in North London, and it was a huge relief every summer to have a week on the south coast at Charmouth in Dorset. And I so looked forward to that as a child that my little backpack was already prepared and ready at Easter, months before we ever went on holiday. It's not morose to think about death and the future in that way. The point is, am I excited by that prospect of that future with God himself? If we truly understand that our lives now are part of the preparation for eternity, our union with Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, who lives on, is my future, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our purpose. So there is absolutely no need to dodge the issue of death or to postpone our heavenly rejoicing. We should anticipate it, Peter says. So let's sum up. Paul is, uh, Peter here is urging us to take this hope seriously. It's the most important thing in our lives. He implies in verse thirteen, which we didn't read. We didn't read. He underlines in the middle of verse thirteen. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's one of our biggest mistakes as Christians to imagine that this world is all there is. Live with that future in view. Be committed to live your life in the light of those promises. Don't be careless. Don't be apathetic. Don't give in to the despair of our society. Live your life now as people of hope. Live for something that will last forever, Peter says. No hope like Christ's hope. And it's because of these three things. Our hope is based on a past event. Our hope celebrates the secure future. Our hope transforms our present experience. Let's pray together. As we pray, we'll just use one verse, which appears later in 1 Peter. It's chapter 5 and verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Christ... After we have suffered a little while, will Himself restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen.